Hello and welcome to the Erwin Mitchell podcast, here to keep you up to date with the legal and financial news that matters to you. I'm Joanne Mosley, a practice development lawyer in our employment team here at Erwin Mitchell, and I'll be your host today as we discuss holiday pay. I'm delighted to be joined by employment partner Glenn Hayes. Glenn heads up our northern team and is based in Leeds. He mainly acts for employers and has defended some large holiday pay claims over the last few years. Welcome, Glenn. Hi, Joe. How are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. You? Yeah, not too bad at all. Thank you very much. Excited to talk about holiday pay. Um, We've got lots of things kicking around around it at the minute. So before we do then, Joe, I think it's probably important that you set the scene then. So how much holiday work is entitled to receive? Well, everyone, and that includes zero hours and casual staff, must receive the equivalent of 5.6 weeks holiday a year. And so for full-time workers, that amounts to 28 days. So if you're working part-time, then you prorate the number of days rather than the number of weeks. So if someone is working, for example, three days a week, they're entitled to 16.8 days holiday. Great. Well, in terms of holiday pay, then, I mean, I feel like I've been talking about this for for years. So it's a massive issue for uh, businesses. And the reason why I think it's a huge issue is that it's it's extremely complicated legally. So the work and time regulations provide that a worker must receive a week's pay for a week's holiday. That's quite easy to understand. But the concept of a week's pay is set out in a number of different pieces of legislation that, quite frankly, weren't designed with holiday pay in mind. And what you generally receive, depending on whether you had normal working hours or not. Now, many people only receive the basic pay. And that, that's the way in which we operated for many years. And that really excluded things like overtime payments, allowances and commissions. But those things now really need to be considered in holiday pay calculations. Absolutely. And I'm aware that you've wrestled with a number of cases. And I wondered whether you might be able to set out a bit of the history to those claims. Yeah. So the litigation for this really stems back as far as 2014. And the first real sea change came in a case called Bear Scotland. And that established some important principles. The main one being that overtime that wasn't compulsory overtime uh, had to be included if it was either regularly or frequent. Now, what I mean by regularity is, let's say, for example, I worked at Interflora uh, or, a, or a card factory. I would always have peak times of my year when I'm likely to have to do uh, overtime, such as uh, in the run-up to Mother's Day, Christmas, for example. And um, So I would be expected to do that regularly throughout certain points of the year. Now, frequency is a bit different. That's where, for example, I might do two hours this week. I might do an hour uh, overtime the week after, nothing the week after that, three hours the week after that. And if there's a frequent pattern of overtime, then again, um, the case law uh, that was established really set out that that should be included in the calculation of of holiday pay as well. Now, since those cases have come out, uh, Joe, there's also been a number of other cases regarding allowances, commissions, and different types of overtime and term time workers. So, for example, in relation to commission, there was a case called British Gas versus Locke, and that's where Mr. Locke uh, argued that he was prejudiced every time he took holiday because effectively by taking holiday, he was denied the ability to earn commission whilst on holiday. So he would ring up people and try to persuade him to buy British Gas products. He received a basic wage plus commission when he was working. And, and when he obviously took holiday, he only received his basic wage only and was therefore deprived of that ability or chance, if you like, of being able to earn those commissions. And he argued that formed a part of his normal uh, pay and was disadvantaged by it not being included in the uh, holiday pay he received when he was off. And ultimately, he was successful in that argument. The same in relation to allowances, really. So there's been cases involving people like pilots who earn uh, out-of-hours 
payments for or allowances for uh, shifts that they do or because they have to travel over certain distances. And again, because that's been deemed to be a part of their normal pay, uh, again, that's been uh, it's been required to be used as in the calculation for their uh, holiday payment when they're off. Now, Joe, um, there's also been some issues regarding term time workers. Do you want to explain that one? Yeah, the issue regarding term time workers is a really interesting one. And I think that's arisen mainly because of the way in which term time workers are paid. So term time workers obviously only generally work um, during during the term, um, but they're they're paid throughout the year, generally in equal monthly instalments, and it basically allows them to, to budget. And it's certainly the same sort of um, principle that operates in schools and colleges. And many people assumed that you could prorate holiday allowance to reflect the fact that people only work for part of the year. But unfortunately, the um, Court of Appeal in a recent case involving a school teacher said that that's not right at all and that you can't prorate 5.6 weeks. And that even though you may only be working for 20 weeks a year or 30 weeks a year or whatever it is, you are still entitled to 5.6 weeks holiday. And they gave a really extreme example, which horrified a lot of our clients that were schools and colleges. And what they said is that basically, if you're on a permanent contract, but you only work for one week a year, you're entitled to 5.6 weeks holiday. So if you're paid £1,000 for that week's work, you're entitled to £5,600 worth of holiday. And of course, that caused a lot of concern in the education sector. The Supreme Court are going to be deciding that issue later this year. It's incredibly complicated, isn't it? Um, I don't know whether you've ever thought about whether or not there's, a, there's some sort of basic principles that we can help employers understand. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the most basic principle really is that the whole purpose behind this is that holiday pay has to reflect the amount of work a normally receives when they're actually working. So historically, you might have had people that were contracted to work 20 hours, for example, and if they did another 20 hours overtime, when they took on a regular basis, then when they took holiday, they would only be paid on the basis of the 20 hour week rather than the 40 hour week. So I can see that, that there's a, there's a logical argument as to why this should be cracked down. But I think the problem is that a lot of businesses still aren't getting this right, despite the ongoing litigation. And we're certainly seeing that at the minute. So employers are getting challenged by their employees and, and saying, well, actually, I'm my holiday pay calculation is not correct. Yeah. So let's say for argument's sake, I've got a business and I've got and I've made a mistake. I've not paid people the correct amount of holiday pay. How far back can workers go in terms of claiming underpayments of holiday? Well, in theory, uh, as far back as the working time regulations, which started in 1998, or when obviously the individual started with employment with their employer. Um, but in most cases, we're able to use currently at least complicated legal arguments to reduce the liability on the part of employers to the current holiday year. So there's a number of ways in which we can do that. And that's stemmed from the, the case law, essentially. So. This is a European requirement, okay? So under, under European law, uh, workers are entitled to 20 days, not the 28 days that you've set out. So the, this requirement to pay overtime allowances commission in theory only bites, if you like, on the first 20 days of a person's 28 day annual leave. So on day 21, when you pay somebody incorrectly, arguably, without paying a holiday, without an overtime uh, requirement in it or a commission or an allowance or whatever it is, you are paying them correctly under UK law. Okay, so that's the first point. Equally, if there's a gap of more than three months or, or more between underpayments, then that 
in theory, breaks the chain of causation and breaks that series of deductions. So if, for example, I took my holiday in January of this year and I took five days and I was incorrectly paid because I didn't receive any overtime uh, payment within that holiday allowance, and I didn't bring a claim within three months of that, and I then took my next set of holiday in July, okay, and I was paid incorrectly again, I would only be able to bring a claim based on the July payment if I brought it in either August, September, October. I couldn't then go back to the January underpayment either because of this gap or three of three months or more. So if you think about the 20 days as well, if I take my first 20 days holiday from, say, uh, January to June, and then uh, and I'm incorrectly paid, and then I take my 21st day holiday in July, and I bring a claim in, say, uh, October, I won't be able to bring a claim for that earlier stuff because where I've been incorrectly paid because I've been correctly paid for my July payment without the payment in it. So it, it's a really, these are really complicated legal arguments and it depends on when individuals' holiday year arises, the individuals, uh, how they take their holiday. And there is challenges to all of this stuff going through the Supreme Court again. So there's a Northern Ireland case called Agnew against the Ambulance Service Trust where those types of complicated legal arguments that I'm describing are under challenge. And the Northern Ireland courts have taken a different view to the, uh, to the UK courts to basically say, well, actually, we don't recognise that. If there's still a, a series of deductions and it's ongoing, we're entitled to go back the full hog. So it's hugely problematic for any organisation that, that isn't paying people properly. And a lot of organisations, in fairness, don't realise that they are paying people incorrectly. So we'll wait to see what the outcome of that case is. Yep, Glenn. So that's true. But I suppose in most cases, employees are not going to be able to go back further than two years, are they? Uh, because of the legislation that the UK government introduced in 2015, which applies to England, Scotland and Wales, but for some reason not Northern Ireland. And it's interesting, isn't it, that the government introduced that specific piece of legislation because it was worried about the impact of these cases and how far back workers might potentially be able to go to recover underpayments. And they were worried that without that, holiday pay claims would bankrupt many businesses. Yeah, that's right. There was a, a limiting order set on it um, so that uh, essentially you could only go back two years for those payments. And that has been helpful for uh, um, many employers. And the reality is the arguments that I'm talking about before, it might only mean that you're on, the exposure is only limited to one holiday year anyway. But there is an exception to that, Joe, isn't there? And that applies to businesses who haven't been paying holiday at all because they wrongly believed the individual was self-employed rather than an employee or a worker. Can you explain how that works? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We've seen a massive increase in the number of people that are claiming now that they've been wrongly classified as self-employed. And generally, they do so at a point where their services are no longer required. So they, they bumble along quite happily whilst they're still working for a particular individual or company. But at the point where they part company, they start to look at whether they do actually have any employment rights. And you'll remember, won't you, that um, earlier this year, the Supreme Court decided in the Uber taxi drivers case that rather than their 40,000 odd taxi drivers being classified as genuinely self-employed, that the ones that brought the claims were in fact workers and were entitled to basic employment rights. And of course, that includes the right to receive paid holiday. But we're not just talking about gig economy workers, although obviously they're quite vulnerable to these sorts of challenges. We've seen cases in the courts where plumbers and salespeople have been found to be workers too. So it's much wider than the, the gig economy. And as you've said, Glenn, that these claims can potentially go back 
from the date they started working for the organisation or in sort of 1998, which was the date when the working time regulations came into force. And in the Northern Ireland case that you were talking about, because in Northern Ireland they don't have this limiting provision, the claims there will potentially go right the way back to 1998 because they're about police officers and generally police officers work for a minimum period of 25 years and that case there is worth over 40 million pounds and is ongoing because liabilities are still accruing. Now anybody that's um, found to be a worker when they incorrectly believe they've been to, uh, self-employed is entitled to four weeks holiday for every year of their employment so you can't you can't go back and claim 5.6 weeks holiday for every year and there's been some recent litigation in the UK about this and what the what the courts have said is that you can recover outstanding holiday on an ongoing basis provided you've not taken any holiday at all and what the courts have said effectively if it, is if you've taken holiday even if it's unpaid you have to complain about that at the time and because most people don't find out what rights they're entitled to until, as I've said, you part company with an organisation, that will create a barrier for many people. I think it's a pretty harsh decision, to be frank, to expect people to make inquiries so that they know what they're entitled to receive. But we'll just have to wait and see. I know that the case that I'm talking about, they are looking to appeal that decision. So we may get a, um, a court of appeal decision later in the year on that. I mean, we're definitely seeing some quirky things coming through. So I think in addition to uh, people parting company with their employer, we're also seeing it in the context of things like discrimination complaints or whistleblowing complaints. So you'll have people who genuinely were regarded by all parties as self-employed and it suited them for tax purposes or, or whatever to, to claim that status. Now claiming that they are workers or employees in order to gain specific rights, like the right to be able to, to claim a detriment for having blown the whistle, for example or the right not to be discriminated against, which doesn't apply to uh, self-employed people. And what you then find is you often find that person then tacking on a holiday pay claim to say, oh, and by the way, I've not received any payment for holiday. So we've seen uh, this issue cause uh, employers many headaches. Obviously, we're using some of those uh, arguments that we've talked about before, but I've also seen some uh, employers fall foul of trying to change things. So I've got uh, one client, for example, who realized that they were potentially exposed and changed people's terms and conditions to reflect the fact that they weren't being paid annual leave and didn't tell the employees that they were doing so it was sort of slipped in and the problem with that is that if you change somebody's terms and conditions uh, that what we call their section one rights you have to notify them of that under section four of the employment rights act and the failure to do so would expose you to a, a potential liability of up to four weeks pay and in this client's case, it it was an, a huge amount of employees and the liability for that alone was about 280,000. So you need to be extremely careful about how you do make changes to these things. We're discussing with clients at the minute, for example, with a group of people who have raised this as an issue that the ways around it and how to sort of incorporate these overtime shift payments into people's pay. So we might, what we might do is abandon the overtime uh, and shift uh, unsociable hours payment altogether and effectively say you are required to work these unsociable hours uh, on a rotor basis or whatever, but you are, you don't receive any additional pay for it. But what we'll do is we'll uplift your uh, annual salary to from, say, 20,000 to 21,000 to effectively take that into account so that when you pay somebody their holiday, you're paying them based on the 21 grand a year salary rather than the 20 grand a year salary in my example. So changing people's terms and conditions is 
potentially huge issue and it's one that employers need to take very carefully really but it sounds as if you've come up with some creative solutions there well yeah we have um so we've got some uh, employment situations whereby for example we've done some status reviews for for employers and we're doing this quite a lot at the minute with ir35 type reviews and things like that and we've concluded that the individuals aren't self-employed as the employer thought they were but they're either workers or employees and that then throws up this holiday pay argument so in one case for example we've advised an employer that we will start to pay people a hol- effectively a payment akin to holiday and call it an encouragement to take annual leave even though they're not obliged to do it so you know there's all kinds of potential creative solutions the problem is that a lot of them are untested and you know we don't know whether they'll be successful in the employment tribunals or not but time will tell i suppose the key thing is that you know the employer clients are thinking about what to do with these issues rather than just burying their heads in the sand which is uh, unfortunately i think what's uh, happened for quite a long period of time prior to this what about brexit though joe has that changed the rules around holiday and holder pay? No, <laughs> in in a, in a word, no, it hasn't. But it could do um, because, of course, the law around holiday pay is influenced by the EU, and there's loads of EU decisions that have been interpreted in the UK that affect the decisions that we have in the UK. The government have said they've they've agreed to adopt any of the decisions that relate to holiday pay, or indeed any other aspect of um, employment law, prior to the first of January, twenty twenty one. And the way in which our system will work now is that only the Court of Appeal or the Supreme Court can change those interpretations. So it can't be done lower down in the employment tribunals or even the employment appeal tribunals. It has to go before the Court of Appeal or the Supreme Court. And of course, the government can um, can change the legislation if it decides to. We don't yet really know what the government's views are on making wholesale changes to legislation that derive from the EU. I mean, I, I think it's very unlikely that the government are going to make fundamental changes to holiday. I think I, I can't see them reducing the number of um, paid holidays that people are entitled to as a minimum. In fact, I think um, Britain was one of the first countries to introduce the additional elements. So, you know, we've got our 28 days rather than the 20 days that the European directive provided for. So I don't think we're going to see a regressive movement in terms of the number of holidays that people receive, but I can see the government getting um, involved in the pay element to it. So it may be that they'll decide that actually they want people only to receive basic pay when they take a holiday, and they could legislate then to overthrow all of these other decisions that say otherwise, um, we, we will just have to to wait and see on that, I think. So in terms of what steps I would um, recommend people to to take then to protect themselves if they are worried about holder pay claims, I would uh, carefully look at people's contracts if I was an employer and I would set out the order in which leave's taken. So Joe's already explained that the European law requires you to give 20 days leave and I've explained that that's what these cases really revolve around uh, where the overtime and allowances and commission stuff have to come into play rather than the UK leave, which is the additional eight days and then possibly the contractual period thereafter that some generous employers give to their uh, employees. So I would look at that and make it clear that it's the European leave that comes first. So if there is a liability, it's only on that first 20 days and it's not all sort of jumbled together. And employees don't have to elect to take the UK leave and then the European leave or whatever. I I would look at this now. I wouldn't wait for the Supreme Court to, to hear these cases. I, I don't think it'll change the fundamental principle about what's to be included because this 
really boils around the issue of uh, what is a person's normal pay. Okay. And I would also think very carefully about setting, for example, some financial pots aside. So there might be uh, liabilities kicking around for the business that you might want to fundamentally provide for now in accounts or whatever. Because obviously, if the Supreme Court dismissed these sort of clever legal arguments that we're trying to run to reduce people's liability, then that pot may be uh, significant and employers may need to plan for that. So it's a, it, it's certainly a big issue and one that shouldn't be just ignored. The other thing is to liaise with you know, the unions and the staff before you really introduce any changes to avoid these sort of bizarre situations that I've described about additional claims being then uh, allowed on the back of it. But fundamentally, I would do a review of the workforce because I think there's the, one of the biggest points here is, you know, people wrongly classifying people as self-employed when in actual fact they are workers and have the right to paid annual leave or employees that have the same right as well rather than those who are self-employed who don't have that right. So if you can get that employment status issue right, then at least you've um, potentially only stuck with the year's uh, liability if if you do get challenged. I think that's a really good point. Um, thank you ever such a lot for your insights. It's been really fascinating. Thank you. And that's it for today. Thanks for listening to the Owen Mitchell podcast. If you found it interesting, then join us for our next episode. Stay safe.